Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good morning, everyone. I'm Matthew Taylor. I'm Chief Executive of the RSA. I'm delighted to welcome you all here for today's event. Um, just a quick reminder before we start, we're filming today's event and it's live stream over the web. So welcome to all of, us, all of those joining us online. If you'd like to get involved in the discussion on Twitter, we think it'll be a very lively conversation on Twitter. The hashtag is RSA Lammy. Um, so it's a great pleasure to be welcoming back David Lammy to officially launch the findings of his review of the treatment of and outcomes for black, Asian and minority ethnic individuals in the criminal justice system. I think the last event I was involved in in this room was the launch of my own review. So it's kind of interesting to see how you've done, David. We should form a trade union for chairs of government reviews. Yeah, that's right. Um, Commissioned by the Prime Minister to undertake an independent review in 2016, David published his interim findings in November last year, alongside an in-depth analysis which identified some of the stages in the criminal justice system at which disproportionality is most pronounced. Amongst the most notable points, the analysis showed that black men and women are sentenced more harshly than white men and women for committing the same type of crime. As some of you will know, I'm sure some of you were here, David joined us here at the RSA before the summer to give us an early insight into his findings. And we are honoured that now having completed his review, he's chosen to return today to the RSA to set out the final recommendations that he believes can ultimately make sure the criminal justice system is fair for all. After David's opening speech, we're delighted to be joined by a, a distinguished expert panel of discussants to give their response to the review findings. Juliet Lyon, CB, is chair of the Independent Advisory Panel on Deaths in Custody and former chief executive of the Prison Reform Trust. Uh, Matthew Ryder, QC, is deputy mayor for social integration, social mobility and community engagement. And David Isaac, CB, is chair of the Equality and Human Rights uh, Commission. And not only have they turned up this morning, but they've all agreed to speak for no longer than five minutes, which is going to be a challenge uh, for them, I am sure. We will try to leave a little bit of time for uh, some questions from the audience at the end, if we can. So, without further ado, please join me in welcoming David Lammy. Well, look, um, thank you very much, Matthew. It's great to be back at the RSA. Uh, It's a place of serious thinking and progressive ideas. And I hope that the report that I'm publishing today um, is an example of both. A lot has changed, frankly, since I first received a mysterious call from Michael Gove to come and have a meeting. Um, As it turned out, he was conveying a message his close political ally uh, at the time, David Cameron, (laughs) I did tell you a lot has changed, uh, wanted me to carry out a review of race and the criminal justice system. And having accepted that invitation, I'm now on my second Prime Minister and my third Justice Secretary. But I want to begin by thanking all of those from David Cameron to Theresa May, Michael Gove, uh, Liz Trust and David Liddington for their support throughout this review. Um, I can be a robust opponent uh, of the government at times, but I took on the review because I saw it as an opportunity to build a cross-party consensus. Uh, And that could only be done through rigorous analysis and the support that I've received from the Ministry of Justice uh, and the team that have supported me at the Ministry of Justice has been exemplary and I'm very grateful indeed. The reason for this review needs little rehearsing. 14% of our population come from a black, Asian or minority ethnic background but 25% of our prisoners do. The figure for 18s in custody is 41%. If people from BAME backgrounds were in prison in proportion to the wider population, we would have over 9,000 fewer prisoners, the equivalent of 12 prisons. New analysis published today shows that the economic cost of black, Asian and minority ethnic people overrepresented throughout the justice system is at least 309 million a year. So we have a problem. It's a problem that's getting worse. It costs 
money, and it risks dividing communities and represents wasted lives. The question is, why is that happening and what can we do about it? Now, it's important to set some parameters around the review I've just completed. I do not believe that all of the causes of black, Asian and minority ethnic people overrepresented in the criminal justice system lie in, uh, uh, lie in the criminal justice system, and nor do all the answers. For example, arrest rates are higher for black boys and girls, but if you are black, you are twice as likely to live in poverty than if you are white. And you are more than twice as likely to live in a lone parent household. You are also more likely to be permanently excluded from school. None of these things justify crime, but all are linked to it. There are deep, entrenched social issues and the criminal justice system cannot possibly solve all of them on its own. There is also, of course, an important debate about policing that goes back many, many years. And that brings issues like stop and search to the forefront, which the Prime Minister herself raised in her time as Home Secretary. But I was asked to focus on those parts of the criminal justice system that have been much less scrutinised from a race perspective. My remit was what happens once you've been arrested. Are you then charged by the Crown Prosecution Service? Are you found guilty in our courts? How are you sentenced? What happens in prison? Do you end up reoffending when you've been released? The review examined the treatment of and the outcomes for black, Asian and minority ethnic individuals, but wherever possible, I have tried to draw out the complexity in that umbrella term. I found that some parts of the system are working well. No institution is perfect, but the Crown Prosecution Service comes out well of my review. The evidence indicates that once arrested, defendants from different ethnic groups are charged at similar rates. Where this is not the case, for example, in domestic abuse offences, I recommend that the CPS should experiment with race-blind prosecuting. This could be done for other offences too, where practical. Identifying information like names and ethnicity could be removed from the forms passed by the police to the Crown Prosecution Service. And that's something I hope that will be looked at very carefully. But overall, I found a lot to commend in the way that the Crown Prosecution Service is run, with some lessons that I will return to for the rest of the system. The findings on juries were also positive. For example, a leading academic, Cheryl Thomas, at University College London, analysed nearly 400,000 jury verdicts using Ministry of Justice data. She found that defendants from different ethnic backgrounds are convicted at very similar rates. These, remember, are the most serious cases in our justice system. Her work also shows that, on average, the ethnicity of jurors themselves has no bearing on the verdicts. So one of the oldest parts of our justice system is in good health. But that is the good news. The bad news is, is that there are a number of areas of real concern. In our courts, the rate at which magistrates find black, Asian and minority ethnic women guilty stands out. It is higher for black, Asian, mixed and other ethnic women than it is for white women. The lack of reliable data collected by magistrates makes it hard to interrogate this properly. We don't have information of legal representation or plea decisions, for example, both of which have a bearing on the number of defendants found guilty. These gaps need to be filled quickly by the Ministry of Justice so that magistrates' verdicts can be scrutinised in much more detail. And in the Crown Court, the key issue is sentencing. 
In November, when my emerging findings were released, the Ministry of Justice published an official statistics document. The analysis in the document covered three groups of offences. It showed that in one of these groups, drug offences, black, Asian and minority ethnic defendants were more than twice as likely as white defendants to receive prison sentences. Even when factors like age, gender, plea decisions and prior convictions are taken into account. The judiciary may well wish to examine other possible reasons for this, such as whether mitigating and aggravating factors explain the difference, but there is currently no evidence-based explanation for why you are more likely to go to prison if you are black, Asian or a minority ethnic person for a drug offence in our country. Many, I'm afraid, will conclude that this is evidence of bias. It is now down to the judiciary to address these concerns. Prison, including youth custody, is another area I have serious concerns about. As part of the review, I commissioned two women's organisations, Agenda and Women in Prison, to look specifically at women's treatment and outcomes in custody. Their report contains some deeply worrying findings, including evidence of overt racism in one of the prisons that they visited. Asian women felt stereotyped as quiet and retiring. Black women felt stereotyped as loud and aggressive. There were reports of racist language that I will not repeat here. Meanwhile, the survey evidence collected by the prison inspectorate in the adult estate is also damning. Black, Asian and minority ethnic men are less likely than white men to report having a prison job, taking part in offender behaviour programmes, or spending 10 hours outside of their cell on weekdays. Black, Asian and minority ethnic men and women are less likely to say that staff treat them with respect or that there's someone that they can turn to for help. They are more likely to report being insulted, victimised, and unfairly treated. They are more likely to report being threatened or intimidated and more likely to report being hit, kicked or assaulted. I could go on, but I won't. And in the youth estate, there's another disturbing pattern. We know that many children arrive in custody damaged individuals. Many have been victims as well as perpetrators of violence with resulting trauma and psychological damage. A third have spent time in the care system and a similar proportion have mental health concerns. Nearly half arrive with substance misuse problems. But when you break down the figures, you find that black Asian and minority ethnic young people are less likely than white young people to be identified as having a range of problems. They're not coming up as having problems with substance misuse concerns or health, mental health concerns. Not coming up as having problems with poor physical health or learning difficulties. They're not coming up as having problems with disengagement with education to problematic family relationships. Again, the pattern is stark. All of this is deeply counterproductive. If the justice system is serious about cutting reoffending, we cannot have unequal access to prison jobs and offender behaviour programmes. We cannot have relationships between staff and prisoners that breed rebellion rather than reform. We cannot have issues like mental health problems going unaddressed. I do not intend to write off every prison officer or every prison. I met many officers committed to doing their jobs and determined to address the kind of issues that I'm talking about. But these findings for the system as a whole are not acceptable. And in probation, it's clear that the recent reforms are in deep trouble. They are not succeeding on their own terms. The idea was to produce more responsive probation services delivered by specialist providers attuned to the needs of particular groups. 
In theory, this should have helped meet the needs of different black, Asian and minority ethnic groups who may require services sensitive to cultural context or attuned to specific needs. For example, many gypsies, roamers and travellers have no fixed abode and have lived lives somewhat detached from key public services. Providers with knowledge of that community need to ensure that they have continued access to education and health services on release. But in practice, the reforms have not lived up to their billing. Small providers have found themselves squeezed out. The charities and community groups who do fantastic work in the probation area. Black, Asian and minority voluntary groups report falling income and problems working with large private sector organisations running community rehabilitation companies. This is not the way to, re to, to reduce reoffending rates for black, Asian and minority ethnic groups. And in many ways, my biggest concern is with the youth justice system. In recent years, youth crime has fallen significantly and far fewer children are now in custody. And on that basis, you can say that the modern youth justice system established by the 1998 Crime and Disorder Act has largely been successful. But there is an untold story over the last 10 years of young people offending for the first time, the Black, Asian and minority ethnic share has risen from 11% to 19% of young people re-offending after a conviction. The Black, Asian and minority ethnic share has risen from 11% to 19%. And among young people in custody, the Black, Asian and minority ethnic share has rocketed from 25% 10 years ago to 41% today. I have to say that I expected to find a laser-like focus on this issue. Instead, I found too much complacency. And this just would not happen in any other public service. When I visit schools, I find teachers and head teachers who can tell you immediately how children from different backgrounds are achieving and who is falling behind. The best schools are using data to inform practice and track progress over time. I'm afraid this urgency has been missing in the youth justice system at least until very recently when the Youth Justice Board has started to collect more data on the issue. If this cohort is not going to become the next cohort of adult prisoners in our prisons, then the system must move up several gears over the coming months and years. And that, I hope, gives a sense of the findings in my review. It's clear to me that black, Asian and minority ethnic people still face bias in parts of the justice system. Not all of this is overt discrimination and some of it may well not be intended. But rather than attempt to decode the intentions behind countless decisions across many different institutions, my report focuses on the treatment and outcomes of these men and women. Actions matter most and the prescriptions for fair treatment are remarkably similar, whatever the diagnosis of the problem. So the first of the three key themes running through my recommendations is the link between scrutiny and fair decision-making. That is a lesson I take from parts of the system that are working well. For example, juries discuss the case and decide as a group. People must justify their views to one another in a public forum. This debate and deliberation acts as a filter for prejudice. In the final decision, power is never concentrated in the hands of one individual. Anyone holding a discriminatory view can be outvoted. Another example, the Crown Prosecution's Service randomly reviews case files. Each prosecutor will have at least one case reviewed each month if a problem is identified, then the level of scrutiny increases, both of, the pro of that prosecutor and of decisions concerning the type of offence. So scrutiny helps prevent problems and offers a chance to correct them. I make recommendations to increase and improve scrutiny across the system. 
we need more data published in key areas so that outsiders can scrutinise the criminal justice system. For example, the government has experimenting with publishing the sentences handed out for each type of offence at each court. So anyone can see how many defendants at Manchester Crown Court went to prison or got a community sentence for supplying cannabis. I want this transparency updated and extended so that figures are broken down by ethnicity. If there are problems with sentencing, we need to know where they are. I call for more transparency in other areas too. We've just had a prisons white paper that set out a range of new data sets that will be published in the future. These include things like the number of hours prisoners have worked in industry, the quality of work opportunities offered by prisons, and the time spent by prisoners out of their cells engaging in purposeful activity. The white paper that the government published made no mention at all of ethnicity. I want this data broken down by ethnic group to allow proper scrutiny. We also need more information about the treatment and outcomes of particular groups. For example, gypsies, Roma and travellers are often missing from published statistics about children in the criminal justice system. That looks set to change and it needs to happen quickly. I also think we need more data on how different religious groups are faring. For example, we know that the number of Muslim prisoners has increased by nearly 50% in the last decade. But prisons are the only part of the system that records and publishes data on religion. I want the Crown Prosecution Service, our courts and probation service also to publish data on religious background. I include private companies delivering services in that. There are public services and they must be scrutinised by the public. Oversight can be, more about, can be more about data though. So in prisons I make recommendations on the governance arrangements for important issues like disciplinary procedures and the use of force. The link between scrutiny and fairness is the first theme. The second theme is the importance of trust. The criminal justice system has a trust deficit with black Asian and minority ethnic communities and it's causing problems. Among those born in this country, 51% of those from black Asian and minority ethnic backgrounds believe that the criminal justice system discriminates against particular groups or individuals. It is the primary reason why black Asian and minority ethnic defendants are so much more likely than white defendants to plead not guilty when charged. Many black Asian and minority ethnic defendants do not trust the advice provided by their own solicitors, let alone the warnings of police officers to admit guilt. What begins as a no-comment interview can quickly become a Crown Court trial involving trauma for victims, cost to the taxpayer and longer sentences for the defendants when they are found guilty. It is in no one's interest if black, Asian and minority ethnic communities do not trust the system to keep its promises. That's a challenge for the Ministry of Justice, the Home Office and the Judiciary but it's also for organisations like the Bar Council and the Law Society too. They have to find ways to ensure that black, Asian and minority ethnic defendants trust the advice that they get, whether that is finding a role for community intermediaries when suspects are first received in custody or giving people earlier access to advice from barristers. And in the courts, measures like publishing sentencing's remarks can help build trust. So offenders, victims and anyone else can understand the reasons why a particular sentence has been given. I also want to see a system of online feedback on how judges conduct cases. This information gathered from Crown Court staff, lawyers, jurors, victims and defendants would reveal whether decisions are understood by all those affected by them. So trust can be built by demystifying the justice system, but it can also inescapably be linked to the diversity of those who hold power in it.
14% of our population come from a black, Asian or minority ethnic background, but just 7% of our judges and 6% of our prison and governors do. This exacerbates the sense of us and them, and that is so damaging to the legitimacy of the system. So I want an organisation like the Judicial Training College or the Judicial Appointments Commission to take on the role of a modern recruitment function for the judiciary. This would involve talent spotting, pre-application support and coaching for candidates who just miss out but are clearly having the potential to make it. I want clear targets set for prison officers, judges and magistrates to be representative of our country by 2025. Those are long-term changes, so in the short term, we have to limit the damage that lack of trust in the system can do. So if there are big disparities in plea decisions, we need to consider the role that they play. At the moment, a guilty plea is almost always the gateway to interventions that try to keep people out of prisons. In the West Midlands, there's been an innovative scheme called Operation Turning Point, dealing with low-risk first- and second-time offenders. Its unique aspect was that defendants had the option of going through an intervention like drug or alcohol treatment before they were asked to enter a plea. The prosecution was then deferred. If they completed the intervention, the charges were dropped. If they didn't comply, they were prosecuted. The latest published evaluation of the scheme shows that victims were 43% more satisfied than those when cases were sent to court. Violent offenders were 35% less likely to re-offend, and there was a 68% fewer court cases with a saving of 1,000 for each case. I want the government to follow the evidence and roll this out right across the system. My final theme is responsibility. In particular here, I'm thinking about the role of adults around children who find themselves in trouble. Parents are the starting point for this. When children are being drawn into street crime, parents must be there to set boundaries for their children. But large parts of the youth justice system appear to have given up on parenting. Last year, 55,000 young people were found guilty in the courts, but just 189 parenting orders were issued by the youth justice system. Only 60 involved black, Asian, or minority ethnic young people. The idea behind parenting orders is that they provide both challenge and support to parents. If the system has lost faith in them, then they need to be replaced quickly with something else. The youth justice system must also be much more rooted in local communities. Data should be shared not just with other public services, but also as part of the conversation with local people about how to cut crime, including reoffending. Hearings could be held more locally using buildings such as libraries or community centres. Selected people with an appropriate interest in a child should be invited to attend the hearings of youth offender panels so that they can observe, advise and be held accountable for their own role in rehabilitation. For example, if an offence has been committed in school hours, teachers or the head teacher should be brought in to discuss the role of the school in preventing further offending behaviour. And whilst the system does not Whilst, and while the system does more to work with parents and communities, it also needs to do more to protect children from exploitation. I sat with parents who feel powerless about their children being drawn into street crime by duress. One mother told me she was trying to move house, actually move from London to a completely different city 90 miles away to stop her son being drawn into selling drugs against his will. Last year, nearly three quarters of police forces arrested under 16s for selling crack, heroin or cocaine. Cocaine. These drugs come from somewhere. We need to focus more on the adults responsible for this, the hardened criminals 
who are moving weapons around our country and sending youngsters out to push drugs. The tools are there, it seems to me. Modern slavery legislation must be used to prevent the exploitation of vulnerable children with much more focus, not just on the young children and the street crime, but on the powerful adults further up criminal hierarchies. Most of all, ex-offenders need the chance to take responsibility for their own lives. An essential part of this is finding and holding down a job. But I found our criminal records regime holding back those from all backgrounds. Over the last five years, 22,000 black, Asian and minority ethnic children have had their names added to the National Police Computer Database. But half of all employers would not consider employing someone with a criminal record. I'm not the only one to call for reform. In his review on the youth justice system, Charlie Taylor called for a sharper distinction between adults and children. I support that. But there should also be more flexibility in the system. I recommend that we learn from the approach in parts of the United States. There should be an opportunity for ex-offenders to come before a judge or an organisation like the Parole Board to prove that they have changed and apply to have their records sealed in all but the most serious cases. There is more that I could say this morning, but I've spoken long enough. I want to end by thanking all of those who've contributed to this review from the many organisations outside government that have given their time and energy to my advisory panel who have been invaluable in supporting me over this process. In some ways, this is the end of the process with the report published today. But it must also be the beginning of something. If we're going to make the progress we need on this issue, I will continue to make the case for change as the government considers its response and begins to implement the recommendations. But the voices in this room will be just as important in ensuring that this issue does not slip back down the agenda, but that it remains a priority in the years ahead. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, David. Juliet. Right. <laughs> Sorry, were you expecting more of a kind of build No, I was expecting <laughs> David to respond to questions, but uh, no. that's absolutely fine. Um, I, I was pleased to be asked to come, but I came with some trepidation insofar as um, this is a territory that's been mined consistently over many, many years, um, and one would always hope that something has changed, something's moved forward. Um, and what I've been preoccupied by looking at, at the review, um, which I really welcome, um, is the kind of collective forgetting the things that have been allowed, as you said, David, to slide, to become less of a priority. Because at one point, looked like there was going to be greater resolution. So from the point of the murder of Zahid Mubarak, the inquiry that followed, the work that was done by um, Martin Neri in the prison service and then Phil Wheatley, to really look at race, look at covert racism and bias um, right across the prison system. And forgive me, I will concentrate mostly on prisons, which won't surprise you. Um, I think everyone hoped that there would be a real sea change. And I think it's a credit to the Zahid Mubarak Trust that they've continued to carry forward that in name and indeed looking at complaints and bias in complaint system to try and maintain a strand and a thread of hope from that really ghastly time when everybody felt that it, we couldn't go any lower than, than that. But I do think what we experience, and, it, and it's true of other areas of the justice system, but it's very stark in regard to uh, race and crime, is a kind of collective forgetting that things move on, priorities change. And I'm seeing it now in regard to safer custody. People here will know that considerable work was done to reduce deaths in custody, um, and that really, although it was incremental and although it was slow, some progress was being made. Um, and over the last few years, we've, we've seen, to our absolute horror, 
um, and sadness, the way in which that slipped back, the extraordinary numbers of self-harm incidents, over 40,000 last year, the rise in deaths in custody. Um, and yet, at one point, the focus was absolutely on that, and it looked like that was going to change. So it, it, I think it begs a, a, a question about the justice system, about consistency and about stability. It's very hard to have a justice system that remembers things if everybody in it moves on and changes. And I'm talking now from prison governors through to secretaries of state for justice. It seems to me almost impossible to have a system where in the last two years alone we've experienced four justice secretaries, all with very different agendas. Um, and I'm hoping very much, David, that your review will maintain a consistent approach. I know that you intend to stick with it. Um, and I think that's very hard. I, I think there's evidence where, where that can be done. If we look across to Lord Bradley's review of mental health and learning disability, the fact that Keith Bradley has remained consistently attached to that agenda across different governments, across different leadership, um, has led to diversion and liaison schemes being established. And that's made in itself a significant difference. But it's just too easy to let this particular issue be the rock that we all walk around something that we accept as this is how the justice system is, this is how the prison system is. And you said there's too much complacency and too little urgency, and I absolutely agree with you. And I think within the prison system itself, there are areas which you've identified which, which not only do we need to gather more information and be clearer about what's happening, but also we need to act um, to change things. So if... I'll take an example, the Incentives and Earned Privileges Scheme, which has become increasingly punitive, led to more and more people being kind of, I'm just trying to think of the right word, corralled into a basic regime which restricts everything about their experience of imprisonment. And then you look at the figures in that particular area, and in March 2016, you see that black prisoners, for example, were on basic, almost 8% of black prisoners were on a basic regime. Those with mixed ethnicity, still over 7%, compared to with fewer than 5% of white prisoners. So we have the information, but we need to ask why that is. Uh, and I think you helped me when I said, well, look, my focus now is very narrow. It's about reducing deaths in custody. It, it's not as general and wide as it used to be at Prison Reform Trust. Uh, and in that territory, you'll know that the disproportionality isn't replicated so that there, there isn't a disproportionate number of deaths in, in black and Asian and minority ethnic groups. But what there is, and I think you drew my attention to it very sharply, is a disproportionality in terms of, of violence, assaults, and where people find themselves. They find themselves in segregation. They find themselves on the basic level of incentives and earned privileges. They find themselves not trusting staff, and the inspectorate very helpfully draws our attention to that. There's a quote from one person who'd, who'd been in the care system, um, who, Lord Farmer, whose review was published earlier this week on families, um, drew attention to this. And I think it's important because it says a lot about this particular area of disproportionality. This care leaver said, during my time in prison, one of the hardest things I had to deal with was not having my mum and dad around. The trauma got to me so bad at times, I used to cry myself to sleep, wishing they were here to support me through my sentence. That in itself had me thinking thoughts of suicide. But instead of harming myself, I put that pain into violence. And I think we need to look far harder at the kind of criminal damage that happens, the kind of not caring about outcomes, the kind of lack of self-regard that is imbued by always finding yourself in a position where you're not going to be advantaged, where you are going to find yourself not employed, where you're going to find yourself excluded from school, and the anger and mistrust that builds within that and that spills then into the prison system, and we see it replicated within the systems. And that requires the kind of planning and the kind of overarching insight into behaviour that would make a difference, but that also requires consistent leadership and a preparedness to hold on to an issue and not let it go. And I'm, I'm just amazed that since the time at Feltham, so long ago, the time when many people in this room will remember, we all felt 
this will change things, this will make the difference, that we're now today looking at a review which so helpfully draws together all the information, but not only draws it together, but identifies patterns, shows where there's bias, uh, and also helpfully shows us ways out of it, that I regret that we're in that position. I regret that there's been a collective forgetting. And I think that in itself is a fundamental unfairness. Thank you. Matthew. Um, thank you. Uh, I think I was asked to become involved with the review, uh, really to bring the perspective that I have from uh, more than 20 years as a practicing barrister, as a QC, and uh, also because I sit as a judge in the Crown Court um, part-time. And so I brought with me the perspective of being a practicing lawyer and being someone who sits as a judge um, to uh, help with the review. And so there are really, in the, in the short time I have, there are just kind of four points I'd like to make about the review. Um, the first is that um, when you read it, you'll see the research is deep. And that's a really important aspect of the review. It deals with facts that have gone carefully through an enormous amount of material, studied academic research, and traveled the world to make comparisons. And it gives the report for that reason a level of authority and credibility which it needs in order to take on those who will sometimes be resistant to change within the system, not because they don't want the outcomes to change, but because they're not sure that the change will be good for the system as it currently exists. And um, I tell people I work with, young barristers I work with, trainees, that if you're talking to a judge, uh, opinions are like carbs and facts are like protein. And we all like to gorge on carbs from time to time, but it gets you flabby and it doesn't help. Whereas facts, like protein, give you nourishment and actually can give you something to really help you to grow. And there is a lot of protein in this report, really helpful facts, which you can use to understand why the issue is as serious as it is and how we can grapple with it. Um, just the sort of facts that David put out just now, 25% of BAME, BAME people within the system, 41% uh, in the relation to the youth justice system, 240% more likely to receive a custodial sentence for drug offences if you're from the BAME community. These are shocking, stark facts. And it is for us to understand why those facts are there. So that's number one. The research is deep, and I think that's a very, very helpful thing. Number two, the approach to data in this report is a modern contemporary approach. Uh, it's clear that David and his team have gone through a really careful analysis of how to gather data, look through data sets, and have had, have had access to data sets um, from the position uh, that's commendable from government opening up to them the data that isn't always available to everybody. And as a result, it gives the report a new approach on data but also, I think, commendably, how to attack that data, how to understand that data. And the reason I say it's contemporary is because the report also highlights where the data is missing and how we should approach missing data. The report doesn't say you sit back and say, well, the outcomes don't make sense, but we don't have the data, so let's just continue to ride along with those outcomes. The report challenges, through specific recommendations, that where the outcomes show clear disproportionality and you can't explain them with the data, then you need to either get the data to explain them and justify it, or you need to change your position. And I think that's a very helpful approach because it challenges everybody within the system to say, if we do have disproportionate outcomes, there's no point sitting back and saying, well, we can't really understand why. You've got to work to change those outcomes. You've got to change the existing system. Uh, thirdly, I think it's really important to note that the report is a comprehensive assessment of the intertwined nature of this problem. It doesn't go, it takes on a bold approach to looking at representation within, within the judiciary, looking at prisons, looking at sentencing, looking at how decisions are made. And I think that nature of linking up those different parts of the system, sometimes which, which although they're connected, operate in isolation. As someone who practices as a lawyer and sits as a judge, I sometimes am not aware of some of the detail of how the prison system works, which this report really is illuminating about, because I'm seeing the policies and the impact on those who are sentenced and how they're treated. 
So that holistic approach to the problem, I think, is really commendable and is a really important feature of this report. And fourthly, I think it's important to know that the recommendations, the 35 recommendations for the report, are accessible, bold, and challenging. There will be those in the system, and I speak uh, from knowledge, there will be lawyers and judges who will read the report and the recommendations and will not necessarily uh, approach them in a way that says, well, obviously we're going to do all of these. There'll be questions, there'll be uh, probing about them. But what I think is really helpful that these bold recommendations are, are underpinned by that authority and that research so that those who would seek to dismiss them or resist them will have to take on the arguments that the report makes so eloquently. And for that reason, I think many of the reports, particularly those that challenge how sentencing works or how other issues in the criminal justice system work, are going to have to be met head on and going to have to be thought through quite carefully. And for that reason, I think they're very helpful. Just, just to take a couple, um, deferred prosecution agreements, that's been something which has gained a little bit of attention you know, just in the couple of, and just in the few hours since the report's been released. And sometimes people approach them as if to say, well, this seems completely unusual, this seems completely new. But we have deferred prosecution agreements of kinds. We have conditional cautions, but then you have to admit guilt in relation to commit conditional caution. But we have deferred prosecution agreements, as many of us know who practice in the serious fraud context, that the serious fraud office can, can issue to corporations and organisations who are charged but who want to cooperate or want to go through a process where they may not, may not be prosecuted. Now, where I think that's interesting is because what this uh, review does is takes an innovative approach at looking at how something has happened in one part of the criminal justice system, how it works, and how it could be extended to what may, many would see would be a completely different part of the criminal justice system, and trying to link those approaches together in a way that learns from one area and brings that learning into another. Uh, another issue would be uh, the uh, question of sealing records. Well, many lawyers and judges might say, at a first blush, but we have the Rehabilitation of Offenders Act. Why do we need a new review talking about a new recommendation about sealing records? Well, those who think that, I would urge them to go to the review, look at that recommendation, and then look at the text that underlines it. Because when you do, you will see uh, David and his team have carefully gone through the Rehabilitation of Offenders Act, where it falls short, and why in their submission, in their recommendation, <coughs> excuse me, a newer, more nuanced approach would be desirable, and how that could happen and how that's happened in other areas. So for those are examples of how the recommendations, I think, uh, need to be considered fully and carefully because they actually take on the counter-argument and try and answer them. Uh, where does this all lead? Well, finally, uh, I'd really just say that uh, as I read this report, speaking from my own point of view, this is a guide. These recommendations are a guide powerfully thought through suggestions as to how we could make change to a problem that, that has become entrenched within our criminal justice system for decades and in all of our knowledge. Uh, these are recommendations which, in a sense, David's team is saying, if you want to make change, you can think about adopting these and you can make change by doing so. But the test will come as to whether they are adopted and the test will come as to whether resources are put to making this sort of change. And it's no point having a review that is this comprehensive, which makes these sorts of bold recommendations, if the resources are not put in to making those recommendations real. And I would urge those who are in a position to do so to try and think about what resources can be put to ensuring that these recommendations can actually hit the ground running and be taken on to be made good. Thanks. Thank you. David's just whispered to me, I'll keep it short. So, <laughs> so I'll try to uh, stick to that. So, uh, David, uh, congratulations on the report. Uh, you and your team have worked incredibly hard and effectively, I believe. What you have created is a real call for action. And I think it's really important, and I endorse much of what uh, my colleagues have actually said uh, this morning about how important the report is, how seriously the recommendations need to be taken, and really it's a plea to government to engage, create um, the right team and allocate the right resources to ensure that all of the recommendations are considered very seriously. 
I think we are all very guilty of believing that British justice is the best in the world. I think many people in this room know that that isn't the case. And actually, in relation to accessibility to justice and confidence in the justice system, we know that ethnicity should not be a bar and should not prohibit uh, fairness in relation to the way in which justice uh, is allocated. The EHRC actually commissioned a really important uh, and groundbreaking report last year looking at race issues. And the points that I really want to make this morning really go to the way in which I believe that uh, BAME people are often treated as second-class citizens in this country. That necessarily means that in relation to all of the areas that we looked at, whether it's in relation to uh, the workplace, in relation to education, and in relation to other really important defining areas like criminal justice, we need to heed the um, messages that are coming from the data. The data presents a very stark and depressing picture, and that's why I say, given the work that David and his team have been doing, the deep dive in relation to uh, criminal justice, this is just one part of a bigger picture, which I think it is urgent uh, that the government addresses. We at the Commission have called for a um, strategic approach towards uh, race and a coherent race strategy. The government has responded with um, its response in relation to the development of uh, an audit, which of course um, is to be uh, congratulated. I congratulate them in relation to that. But we very much see that as a uh, first step. And really, a lot of what we've been calling for in relation to other domains applies in relation to criminal justice. So in relation to criminal justice, I would endorse all the points that have been made about data, absolutely key. In relation to diversity in the criminal justice system more widely, it's absolutely important that there are role models that um, younger members uh, of the BME community can identify with, and that's come up from the interviews that uh, I've given this morning. And we do need to think very innovatively about how we're going to ensure that those who are unfortunately already in the system when they're young are rehabilitated. So I welcome the uh, ideas. Some are already, as Matthew says, uh, in, in practice or are being piloted. We need to be bold. We need to be uh, courageous. And actually, we need to challenge the nearsayers because whether it's um, the lens of cost, whether it's the lens of uh, how we are going to improve society, or how are we going to fulfill the potential of so many people in this country, the 14% that we've been talking about, we need to take urgent action. So I could go on. I do want to talk about how important poverty is, but I won't uh, do that uh, today. But David, can I congratulate you um, again on what you've done? I'm really keen that the government engages with the detail and the very um, coherent proposals that you have um, put forward. The Prime Minister talks about the burning injustices in this country, and I'm really, really keen that we today build, a, build uh, upon what David is uh, recommending and take that message out more widely. Thank you. Now, we have got a tiny window for comments, and so I'm going to impose two rules uh, as I just take a, a, a one round of, 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 of short responses. First of all, much as I love our friends from the media, David's done a full media briefing, so I'm not taking questions from journalists. Uh, secondly, please keep your comments pithy and short so that we can take four or five comments before I ask David to respond to the panel and anything else he's heard before we close. So who wants to make uh, a comment? Yep. If you could tell us who you are, that would be great. Jeremy Crook from the Young Review and BTEG. I want to ask, I want to thank, congratulate David on a, on a very robust review. Uh, I want to ask David Isaacs, uh, as the chair of the commission, how long he will give the government to really action these recommendations before you use your powers as a regulator to make change? 
Right. I didn't think anyone else was going to have to give a response. Why don't you... Uh, uh, very subversive question. Do you want to respond to that very quickly? Very, very quickly. We're in discussion with dialogue... Sorry, we are in dialogue with government, and those discussions mean that we're holding them already to account. We're pushing them hard, and you make the point that I would have made, which is we have regulatory powers. I'm keen that we're a more muscular regulator, and we will do precisely that. Yeah. Uh, YJB board member. Um, David, well done on that report. Very specifically, and I suppose it does, uh, your own constituency as well would be a, an area to look at. The, the, what, what worries me a little bit about this report is the specific experiences of, of particularly black young males and, 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 and the subculture that, that, they're, that we're, where we are under, really, in terms of that. And the role of um, elders... Uh, specifically in, in, in solving this problem. And to a certain extent also, for Matthew as well, this whole idea of maybe getting um, agencies that are much more credible in engaging with those young people and, and yachts and things like that. Have, I mean, where, where is this moving us on? Where are we getting some big ideas here so that we can run with? Thank you. Uh, gentleman here in the front row. And the gentleman there at the edge, and I'll take one more after that. Hi, I'm Nathan Dick from Clinks. We support the voluntary sector to work in criminal justice. Uh, it might actually be following on a little bit from that question. You mentioned quite a lot in the review about engaging communities, increasing trust, and we think that especially smaller voluntary organisations from black, Asian, minority, ethnic communities are absolutely vital to doing that. But in our most recent State of the Sector report, we found that they were 30% more likely to be at risk of closure. The sector tends to be made up of very small organisations. I think whilst race ethnicity has dropped off the agenda of the criminal justice system over, to, over history, so has the importance of these community organisations. So I think we need to think about how we actually can support them and build them up to be able to respond to some of the challenges that face their communities too. I realise it's been all men so far, so let me take... Uh Wait for the mic. Um, I'm director of um, Inquest, Deborah Coles, and I congratulate you, David, on this review. It's depressingly familiar, and all speakers have alluded to reviews that have been carried out in the past. We're still waiting on publication of the Angelini review that's looking at deaths in police custody, where people from BME communities are disproportionately represented amongst those who die following the use of force. And my question is, what will you be doing to monitor um, the mechanisms for actually ensuring that action is taken in response to this review and also joining up with any recommendations that Damalish Angelini is going to be making? And so final two on either side of the aisle, here and then Victor. No, you, end, you finish, Victor. Thank you. Um, Christopher Stacey from Unlock, a uh, charity for people with convictions. Uh, can I welcome your uh, recommendation around sealing criminal records? Um, it's something we've called for for a long time. If I set that into the context of the fact that the government is currently challenging a legal case that would, have, that would do that in particular, it makes me question what else is needed for the government to be convinced by that argument because clearly it's something that would bring a lot of uh, life chances to people who have old and minor records. Great, and then finally Victor. Uh, a couple of things. First, um, Tell us who you are, Victor. Um, my name is Victor Adibowale. I'm Chief Executive Turning Point and um, a veteran of, of reviews, um, <laughs> I'm afraid. Um, How did he do? Yeah. And, well, firstly, it's an excellent report. Um, it's what I call an excuse remover. Um, the problem, the challenge for us is how do we maintain the pressure on government? Um, uh, I agree with Juliet, Juliet's point, but I would go further. It's not just that ministers move. There's something about... The, the plight of BME groups, which is not significant enough to warrant consistent importance across public policy. That's the issue here. And I think unless we can actually identify it, then we'll keep making the same mistake. Um, on the point of, of the voluntary sector, I happen to run an organisation which uh, actually it's not about large or small. Um, we, con we provide substance misuse services. Uh, mental health services, learned disabilities, many of the issues that you've referred to in your report are right on our doorstep. We have to point out that the cuts to public health, the cuts to mental health, and, and the cuts 
to uh, the, not just the voluntary sector, but public sector services that are relevant are having a devastating, devastating effect on black and minority ethnic groups and black and minority ethnic groups in poor communities. I don't think we can avoid that fact. It's just got so bad that that is the now the elephant in the room. Um, I guess my question really is, it's a question for all of us really, is how do we uh, create consistent pressure on government, both local and national, to ensure that your excuse removal report actually delivers? So, David, you've got uh, the unenviable task of responding to three expert comments and lots of brilliant questions in two minutes. Uh, so you won't be able to cover everything, I know, but just pick on two or three of those things. Well, let me just say that um, I am very aware that my review builds on many other reports that have gone on over decades. So it is right to say when I talk about trust in black, Asian and minority ethnic community, alongside that trust is a degree of cynicism because this story is one that those communities are all too familiar with. And many of you in this room work in those communities on a day-to-day -day basis. Can I just also say that clearly we were able to do a very wide-ranging piece of work over a very long time. The government very much opened up the books, if you like, for me to look underneath the data. I insisted that everything I have said was evidence-led. So this is not heavy on rhetoric, my review. It is heavy on evidence. And can I also thank the work of the young review that very much paved the way for this broader review and the role that Lola Young has played, um, uh, particularly over recent years. But I think the points that have been made about responsibility and community are very, very important. Um, I've said that the youth justice system seems to have forgotten the role of parents, and I, I believe that. This is where it starts. I do believe that we've got to do more to extend that reach into communities. And let me just be clear, communities are not just local authorities and statutory agencies. Communities be, means being present on our housing estates. It means being present in our community centres. It means providing the data to those communities to interrogate how things are done. And there are better examples of community engagement and real proximity to the youth justice system in countries like New Zealand and Canada. Same common law jurisdictions wrestling with huge problems with their indigenous communities overrepresented in the criminal justice system, but frankly doing better than the United Kingdom to really engage communities. And then the two last points that I'd want to emphasize. What do I really want to achieve from my review? The youth justice system has done a good job, broadly speaking, in keeping young people out of prison, understanding that it's hugely counterproductive to lock up teenagers in our country. It has done a less well job with keeping black, Asian and minority ethnic young people out of prison and has had far less focus on young black and Asian minority ethnic people having a criminal record per se. That is the importance of deferred prosecutions. And it's why we need to think really hard about how effective our rehabilitation systems are if 46% of black, Asian and minority ethnic young people are reoffending at the rates they are. The trajectory is not good if you look at the figures, there are real, real challenges there for all of us. But let me be absolutely clear. My recommendations really run across the whole system. And in that story that is both race and class in relation to criminal justice, my recommendations are as important for white working class communities as well. We've got a lot to do. We must not be complacent about how fantastic our criminal justice system is. There is much, much more to do. It needs leadership. There, is, there can be no excuses. Where are our black, Asian and minority ethnic prison governors? Where are our black, Asian and minority judges? I don't want to hear any more chat about the pipeline. We have some of the most eminent and excellent lawyers in our country, and Matthew Ryder 
is an indicator of how much quality we have. So let us have no more discussion of the pipeline. Let's make it happen. We need those judges by 2025. Uh, well, thank you all for coming along uh, today. We have an opportunity to continue the discussion over refreshments in the vaults and to view an exhibition of art curated by the Curse of the Trust, the UK's leading prison arts charity. That's down the atrium stairs to level minus three, and we've got RSA staff who can uh, show you uh, the way. Uh, please also collect a copy of the review uh, report. Uh, at, at the risk of sounding pious, I would just say that having written my own review and having lots of conversations about it, there is a fundamental difference in the quality of conversation you have with people who have actually read the review <laughs> and people who have read the tweets about the review. Uh, so this is a, a, a well-written piece of work full of fantastic information, so I really strongly commend you to just take the hour and a half or an hour that is take, needed to, to really read it. And if I can just add one final comment, I would say this. I think one of the things about this report, David, is, is the power of assumptions, the assumptions that... Uh, the, the BAME, uh, BAME citizens make about the criminal justice system and the assumptions the criminal justice system makes about those citizens and the need to open up those assumptions and challenge them. And I would say that there is, I, you know, I heard in the comments that people made almost, uh, the, 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 the sense of an assumption that once again a review will not lead to real change. And, and so what I want to say to you is not to settle on that assumption but that we should do what we can to challenge that assumption, to say, actually, a review, a powerful piece of work like this can lead to real uh, change. So just before you head downstairs, please join me once again in thanking our discussants, Julia, David, and Matthew, and particularly to thank David Lammy for what I'm sure is going to be a powerful and influential piece of work. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.